We are following some breaking news on multiple fronts tonight, including at the Supreme Court, where special counsel Jack Smith has just responded to Donald Trump's latest effort to delay his federal criminal trial. For months now, Smith's federal election interference trial has been put on hold while the courts consider Donald Trump's claim that as former president, he should be absolutely immune from any and all criminal charges. Now, last week, a federal appeals court unanimously rejected that argument. Trump subsequently appealed that decision to the Supreme Court. And tonight, the special counsel is making an impassioned plea to the nine justices of the high court, urging them not to let Trump delay this matter any longer. In a new filing this evening, Smith writes, The charged crimes strike at the heart of our democracy. The public interest in a prompt trial is at its zenith, where, as here, a former president is charged with conspiring to subvert the electoral process so that he could remain in office. Smith continues, the nation has a compelling interest in the prompt resolution of this case. In all criminal cases, delay can be fatal to achieving just outcomes. Delay in the resolution of these charges threatens to frustrate the public interest in a speedy and fair verdict a compelling interest in every criminal case and one that has unique national importance here. Trump's personal interest in postponing trial proceedings must be weighed against two powerful countervailing considerations. The government's interest in fully presenting its case without undue delay and the public's compelling interest in a prompt disposition of the case. Essentially, the special counsel is saying that the public deserves to see this trial happen and see it quickly. Delays can be fatal in any trial. And in this trial of a former president charged with felonies related to the subversion of American democracy, well, the stakes are simply too high to drag this on much longer. And then special counsel Jack Smith lays out his requests. First, he wants the government to reject Trump's request to continue pushing off the federal trial. Special counsel wants the court to end all the delays and to decline to hear Trump's appeal at all. Now, you may recall that last year when Trump first started pushing this presidential immunity claim, Jack Smith urged the Supreme Court to take that matter up right away. He asked to basically leapfrog the appeals court process and take the question of presidential immunity right to the Supreme Court essentially to settle this matter as quickly as possible. And the Supreme Court said, nope, sorry, Mr. Smith, we don't want to hear this case right now. Well, in his filing today, the special counsel reminded the justices of that decision, writing, to the extent that that denial reflects that this court is not inclined to review Trump's claim, no reason for a stay exists. And the court is better situated to assess that question now that the Court of Appeals has thoroughly analyzed and rejected applicants' immunity claim. In other words, dear Supreme Court justices, you did not want to hear this case before. And if that was because you thought Trump's arguments were bogus, just say so. And let's get on with the trial, especially now that you have an appeals court that has said in no uncertain terms that Trump's arguments were bogus. But also in tonight's filing, the special counsel offers the Supreme Court a second opinion if they don't like the first. He says, if you do want to hear this case, Supreme Court, then please do it as quickly as possible. Smith writes, if this court believes that Trump's claim merits review at this time, 
the government respectfully requests that it set the case for expedited briefing and argument. The government proposes a schedule that would permit argument in March 2024, consistent with the court's expedition of other cases meriting such treatment. Translation, if you're going to hear this case, you should hear it next month. The special counsel even goes on to suggest a detailed schedule going forward. He suggests Trump get 10 days to file his arguments with the court. The special counsel could then get a week to respond and Trump could get five days to respond again. Special counsel is basically saying, let's get all this paperwork done in about three weeks, huh? It is abundantly clear from this filing tonight that special counsel Jack Smith is really, really eager to get this case going. Now, the question is, will the Supreme Court listen? Joining me now is Christy Greenberg, a former federal prosecutor who served for over a decade in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Also joining me is Mark Joseph Stern, a senior writer for Slate covering the courts and the law. Thank you both for being here tonight. Mark, first, I would love to get your opinion. I hear a, a quiet note of desperation in this filing. Am I wrong to hear that? I mean, is this the sort of normal course of events when you're dealing with a high stakes, you know, federal election interference case featuring a former president? So there's certainly a little bit of desperation, um, but the main note that I detected here was urgency, um, but also a, a sense that I think Jack Smith's team was trying to get across that these are trustworthy attorneys and that they are making these arguments in good faith and that they are the ones who deserve that presumption of good faith. They aren't rushing this. It's Trump's side that's trying to run out the clock. And I'll note, you know, one of the signatories on this filing was Michael Dreeben. He was a deputy solicitor general for decades. He argued more than 100 cases before the Supreme Court. He's friends with Chief Justice John Roberts. And I think that by sort of centering his style, his prose style, and making it clear this is a Michael Dreeben brief, Jack Smith's team is trying to tell the court, hey, we're people that you trust. We are telling you the truth here. And so maybe we sound a little desperate. Maybe we sound very urgent. But what we really want is to ensure that justice be done here. And you should trust us more than the other side, because we have put all our cards on the table and we deserve your presumption of good faith. Christy, the Supreme Court justices have a conference on Friday. Jack Smith had until the 20th, but he filed early. Do you think that the justices might make a call on that on this this week? So I don't think it will come as soon as that. I do think that uh, they are going to give Donald Trump and his attorneys an opportunity to reply. Presum the rules about whether or not they, you know, what the timing is on a reply are not all that clear. I expect his lawyers would reach out to the clerk, maybe get some informal guidance about timing of a reply. We're not talking weeks here. I think we're talking more like days. And I think they will give him the opportunity to do that before they rule. But I still expect that we will get a ruling sometime, I would say, later next week. Um, Mark, I wonder whether <laughs> there are a lot of people, I think, in the federal uh, the special counsel's office and maybe in the American public who find all of this waiting and sort of what feels like a pro forma exercise, maybe to be incredibly frustrating. Why? I mean, what do you make of the, the, the justices and what Christie uh, suggests here, that they will wait for Trump to reply here first? Is that 
a signal that they are going to take this case up? Or is that them sort of just trying to go by the books, ma'am, and solely by the books? The justices absolutely want to play this by the books, and that will mean waiting some period of time for Trump to file a reply brief. Now, traditionally, that brief comes within about two days of the response, so that would put us to sometime on Friday. And then after that point, the Supreme Court could rule any time. But I'll note, there's a real opportunity for mischief here. Because the rules are so ambiguous, so notoriously vague, Trump could sort of sit on this, wait for days, even weeks, to file a reply brief and put the Supreme Court in a real bind. They want to look like they're playing it by the book, but Donald Trump never plays it by the book. And so I think one legitimate fear right now is that Trump could try to draw out this process by dawdling and filing his reply brief. And if that does happen, I think there will be a a tough call for the justices to make. But I do think they'll come down on the side of issuing an order. No, it doesn't follow the standard operating procedure, but they're not going to let one party manipulate their docket this way, even if that party is the former president of the United States. Can I just say, Chrissy, it feels like one party has already manipulated the process by virtue of the fact that we're sitting here. Is it late February? It'll be late February as of next week. And the case has been frozen. Nothing has happened in the actual, uh, you know, federal election interference case. No jury selection, nothing. The date is very much TBD. Smith sounds an optimistic note when he says, listen, if you just reject this immunity claim ultimately out of hand, we can get started, you know, in 88 days. If you decide to take it up, can you do the oral arguments in March? To the latter scenario, do you think that the Supreme Court, if they take it up, will follow this on an expedited schedule? Yes. I do. Christy, why don't you go first and then Mark, (laughs) we'll go to you. I do. I I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to want to be seen as tipping the scales here. You know, the same question thinking about the oral argument that was had in the Colorado disqualification ballot, where Justice Kagan uh, pointed to the Colorado lawyer and said, you know, I, I put it to you, should a single state be in a position to decide for everyone? Well, I put it to these justices. Should the Supreme Court be able to decide for the country whether or not this president is adjudicated for, you know, basically using his office to try and breaking the law to try and remain in power. And I don't think that the Supreme Court is going to want to be seen as doing that. They are very focused, as we saw in that oral argument just a few weeks ago, about consequences, about the perception of the court and about the consequences of their actions. And I just think that if they do take this up, which I don't think they should, I mean, in order to have this put on uh, in put on hold, which is what Donald Trump is asking for, Donald Trump has to show that there is the majority of the court. It is likely there is fair prospect. The majority of this court will reverse the D.C. Court of Appeals, which was unanimous, just like the district court opinion was very clear. So, again, I don't think he can meet this standard. What the court should do is just deny his application and send this right back to Judge Chutkin. But if they want to put their stamp on it, they're going to move quickly. If they want to put their stamp on it, Mark, and they hear oral arguments on this in March, do we wait for late June for a decision? Or, I mean, if the, honestly, on a, just a basic calendar call here, if the Supreme Court doesn't decide what it's doing till the beginning of the summer, 
this thing doesn't happen before the election. A trial doesn't happen before the election, does it? That's absolutely right. If the Supreme Court takes up this case and treats it like a regular old case, they'll put it over to the fall. Absolutely no way the trial happens before uh, November. And they've essentially ruled for Trump through a pocket veto. I don't think the court's going to do that. Uh, I do think this is a Supreme Court that likes to have the last word on every possible matter of law. And so I think there's a strong chance they will decide to take up this this case rather than uh, simply dismissing it and allowing the D.C. Circuit to have the last word. But I want to note something the court has been doing lately that might be a tea leaf. The court has been taking up other cases, run-of-the-mill cases, granting cert, but they haven't been putting those cases in their April calendar. They've been holding those cases over for next October. I think there is a real possibility that the justices have known for a while that they were going to be extra busy with some 11th hour appeals in in March and April, and that they have actually been reducing their workload in anticipation of this case and perhaps uh, another one or two that might come down the pipeline. Um, and so I, even though I'm rather skeptical of this court in a lot of ways, I think they want to resolve this case quickly if they take it up. I think they will hold arguments in March or at the latest early April. And I tend to think they'll issue a decision by the end of May. I don't think that they will make the country wait until late June. And a decision in May could would, at least in theory, allow for a trial in advance of November. I mean, it would mean a trial in September and October. We'll set that aside. The court does have a history of of deciding it's going to hear a case, Dobbs, and not telling the public about it. So, Mark, that is quite a hypothesis. Please come back again to talk about that in greater detail. Christy and Mark, thank you both for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We have a lot to get to tonight, including how the party of Trump may be becoming the party of Putin and what that means, not just for Republicans, but for Democrats. Plus, the latest on the breaking news out of Kansas City, where a deadly shooting happened at a Super Bowl celebration. Stay with us. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. Today started with a doozy of a statement from the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Mike Turner. Mr. Turner put out a statement warning about a serious national security threat without giving any actual details. Instead, Congressman Turner released information about the serious national security threat to all the members of Congress and then called on President Biden to declassify the information. 
which means that, practically speaking, today featured Congress members shuffling in and out of a secure room in a basement on Capitol Hill, learning about whatever this threat is, and then giving winking, cryptic statements like, it's not a, it's a serious issue, but it's not going to ruin your Thursday. And I can confirm it says what we all know, that there is no intelligent life in Congress. White House officials told NBC News today that the batter in question is indeed serious, but there were ways to contain this threat without triggering mass panic. Thank you, Mr. Turner. NBC has not independently confirmed this, but The New York Times and ABC News are reporting tonight that the threat cited by House Intel Chair Turner is the attempted development of a space-based anti-satellite nuclear weapon in Russia. And while we don't know any more than that, the fact that it is a Russian threat and that a Republican in Congress is the one sounding the alarm, well, that feels significant, particularly this week. Because just this past Saturday, the Republican frontrunner and the de facto leader of the GOP said this. NATO was busted until I came along. I said, everybody's going to pay. They said, well... If we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. If we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. That is what Donald Trump is telling Russia to do to America's allies. Whatever the hell Russia wants. Those statements this past Saturday did not happen in a vacuum. Days earlier, Tucker Carlson traveled to Russia and interviewed Russian President Vladimir Putin. Or should we say Tucker Carlson traveled to Russia to get a lecture from Russian President Vladimir Putin? Because for two hours, Putin hardly let Carlson get a word in edgewise. Instead, President Putin offered his version of a Russian history lesson. What you're about to see seemed to us sincere, whether you agree with it or not. Vladimir Putin believes that Russia has a historic claim to parts of Western Ukraine. So our opinion would be to view it in that light as a sincere expression of what he thinks. Those sincere thoughts from President Putin went beyond merely claiming Ukraine as Russian territory. Those sincere thoughts also pointed towards something even more alarming, which is how Putin views the rest of Europe and in particularly, and in particular, our NATO ally, Poland. Before World War II, Poland collaborated with Hitler, and although it did not yield to Hitler's demands, as the Poles had not given the Danzig corridor to Germany, it went too far, pushing Hitler to start World War II by attacking them. I mean, who could forget that Adolf Hitler was forced to invade Poland because Poland was stubborn and wouldn't simply surrender? Thank you, President Putin. Now, that interview was released Thursday. Putin, who is already at war in Ukraine, threatened America's NATO allies in American media on Thursday. Donald Trump's response to that on Saturday was to say, eh, I would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want. And the response of the Republican Party, the party of Russia hawks, their response to Trump's statement was largely stuff like this. 
Donald Trump is not a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. He doesn't talk like a traditional politician. And uh, we've already been through this now. You'd think people had figured it out by now. Yeah, I just encourage people not to overreact. I've learned a long time ago not to overreact to what President Trump says or what he tweets. I think that people should take everything he says seriously, but not literally. Well, I, I, I think take what uh, uh, everything President Trump seriously, but I don't take everything he says literally. When Speaker of the House Mike Johnson was asked about Trump's NATO statement, he said simply, not going to comment on that and moved on. But other Republicans went even farther, actually embracing Trump's sentiment. Senator Lindsey Graham said the point here is to, in Trump's way, to get people to pay. Senator Tom Cotton said that Trump is simply ringing the warning bell for our allies. That is where the Republican Party is on Russia right now. It's either see no evil, hear no evil, or threaten our allies to cough up some cash or throw them to Russia. That's the party line. So while we still do not know what exactly this mystery threat is that the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee is warning everyone about, the fact that it is a Russian threat and that he, a Republican, is the one flagging it is significant. Not because Congressman Mike Turner might single-handedly change the Republican position here, but because the Republican position has gotten so extreme that calling out the threat posed by a nuclear-armed authoritarian feels like some kind of rebellion against Republican Party orthodoxy. That is how tight Donald Trump's grip on the GOP is right now. We are going to talk about what that means for both Republicans and for Democrats coming up next. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. I've been saying, look, if they're not going to pay, we're not going to protect, okay? And Biden has said, oh, this is so bad. This is so terrible that he would say that one of the heads of the country stood up and said, does that mean that if we don't pay the bills that you're not going to protect us? I said, that's exactly what it means. That's exactly what it means. That was Donald Trump at a rally in South Carolina just moments ago, doubling down on his comments from this weekend that he would not defend America's NATO allies if they were attacked. If they didn't pay their bills. That's exactly what it means. It is one thing, an incredibly dangerous thing, to have the Republican presidential frontrunner saying things like this repeatedly. But it is all the more dangerous because Trump's party seems to be completely reworking its own foreign policy to stay in line with Donald Trump on this issue. So what does that mean about the state of the GOP? And for that matter, what does it mean for Democrats? Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Charlie Sykes, co-founder and former editor-at-large of The Bulwark. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Mark, I, I, you would think after the panic that ensued uh, over the weekend after Trump said this thing about basically throwing NATO allies to the, the jaws of Russia, should they not pay their bills, 
that there might be, be some sort of recalibration here, but apparently not at all. And the question I would ask you is, does this effectively change the Republican Party line on NATO? Oh, God, no. No. I mean, just to be clear, what we just showed, what you just showed is not that clip from a few days ago. This is now, I guess, part of the message. I, I'd be shocked if there wasn't applause to greet that tonight. I mean, look, it, it's it's the next iteration of the strong. There was man. applause, the control. I'm the sure same. there was. I'm sure. I mean, I didn't see the original, but yes. But this is this is Vladimir Putin. I mean, we're, we before like eight years ago, if you look at the original Russia, if you're listening, show us the email. I mean, it, there were many layers removed and there was absurdity in many ways. There was gross irresponsibility involved. But now we're kind of going directly from point A to point B and the Republican Party, or at least the base of the Republican Party, is cheering wildly. Yeah. And, you know, the Marco Rubio's and the John Cornyn's, I mean, mostly Rubio. I mean, that was an appalling statement, I thought. Um, you know, it all rolls into each other. And like, this is this is where we are right now. So you do think it's changing the position of the Republican Party on this? I mean, I, I was flabbergasted. And I don't know if you were, Charlie, by Lindsey Graham's complete capitulation to the Trump line on this. Lindsey yes. Graham, the hawk, the interventionist, is like, yeah, well, NATO members got to pay their bills. I mean, I guess it's unsurprising that Lindsey Graham takes a knee to Donald Trump when, when you know, when push comes to shove, that's mixing metaphors. But wow, on Russia, there are no sacred cows. No, I mean, Yes. I mean, you know, having having watched, you know, Lindsey Graham's sycophancy, you didn't think you could be surprised anymore. But this is genuinely shocking. I mean, if you step back from, you know, sometimes the clownishness of, of Donald Trump, what you are seeing is a seismic shift in the Republican Party. This is an abandonment, not just of Reagan foreign policy, but of a century of Republican uh, foreign policy. And and the, the party is going along with it. And it's not just the rhetoric. I mean, the other you know context here is the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. Uh, is in the process of blocking aid to Ukraine, you know, handing Vladimir Putin a victory that he was not able to win on the battlefield. So it is extraordinary to watch the Republican Party go along with rhetoric that would have con been considered absolutely beyond the pale and reckless even a few years ago in Trump's first term. But, you know, I also think we need to step back from, you know, just the, 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 the political implications of this, because this is the former president of the United States, perhaps future commander in chief, who is signaling to the rest of the world, to our allies and to Vladimir Putin and to China, um, a policy of appeasement and weakness. This invites aggression. This uh, can lead to the kind of miscalculations that can cause war. Republicans used to understand this at a visceral level. And the fact that they're kind of blowing it off with that cliche about, you know, we take him seriously, but yeah. not literally. How do you think Vladimir Putin takes this? How do you think Vladimir Putin takes the fact that the Republicans in Congress are about to kneecap Ukraine and hand him this massive victory? You think he takes that seriously or and literally? Yeah, it's it's such an essential point. This is happening against the backdrop of a war in Ukraine and a funding bill that Republicans are refusing to pass that could be make or break for Ukraine in this struggle, right? So even if you're sort of rhetorically in the gray, your actions, if you're a Republican Congress, Speak incredibly loudly. I want to bring up um, an assessment that your colleague McKay Coppins had in The Atlantic about how and why the Republican Party has so thoroughly capitulated to, to Trump's wiles. To many elected Republicans, it probably felt like an answer 
to their prayers when a strong man finally parachuted in and starting them started telling them what to do. Maybe his orders were reckless and contradictory. But as long as you did your best to look like you were obeying, you could expect to keep winning your primaries. It's such a cynical assessment, but I think it's, oh, it's spot 100% on. Correct. I think it's spot yeah. on. Shout out to my colleague McKay. I, I think that's right. I think if you, I mean, I agree with everything Charlie said, but if you think about it, this is not a reasoned analysis of American policy, like foreign policy position we're getting from the base. We're getting kind of rote applause for Donald Trump, for the strong man. And if you think about what populism is at its core, in America today, it's sort of celebrity. Like, that is populism. Yeah. And Donald Trump, I mean, in its purest form, sort of rode that to victory in 2016. He's now taken that and combined it with a strongman populism, if it, which is kind of a contradiction in terms in some way, but also is just basically taking it in its most literal form and telling people what to do, and they are applauding with no... Um, sense of what the policy ramifications could be and what the real world ramifications which could be will, could be, which is, you know, frankly, a catastrophic one for Ukraine. Yeah, well, and, and Charlie, that's Mark makes such a great point about the catastrophic implications. I think maybe if you're Mike Johnson, you don't clock the catastrophic implications because you're not thinking too hard about much of anything. But Lindsey Graham knows Marco Rubio knows. Yes. John Cornyn knows. I mean, these people have served in the Senate. You know, they, they know about foreign policy. And yet, it's just it's appalling their capitulation to a very, very dark reality for the people of Ukraine. It, it is appalling. And, and in fact, it is it is breathtaking, you know, and to, and to Mark's point, I, I think this is really crucial. This is not a position the Republicans reasoned themselves into. There has not been this long rethinking of America's place in the world. This is this knee jerk reaction uh, to, to Donald Trump. You know, it has been Donald Trump's ob obsession. The really, you know, troubling thing is that there are still Republicans, you know, you know like like Mitch McConnell um, and, you know, in, in, the, in the Senate who understand the immediate stakes and who are who are trying to, uh, you know, stand up to Vladimir Putin. But look at the generational shift in this party. I mean, a lot of this is Donald Trump. But what is what's the trajectory here? What is more likely to be the future of the party? People like J.D. Vance um, and, and, Mar and Marco Rubio or people like Mitch McConnell. It feels like they are kind of the last line, the old guard trying to remind people what Republicans used to stand for. Um, and they're being swept away both by the you know Trumpist, just kind of the, the nihilism of, of Donald Trump, but also just this new uh, this this new style of, uh, of America first populism, which increasingly um, reminds us of the first uh, iteration of America first. Remember in the 1930s with Charles Lindbergh, uh, when the America firsters uh, kept America out of war and appeased Adolf Hitler. Uh, now we have the second version of it, which is uh, appeasing Vladimir Putin and, and may lead to the same kind of catastrophic outcome. And to say nothing of the fact that the Democratic Party has had to absorb all the people with any kind of sentient thoughts about geopolitics to become effectively an anti-MAGA coalition, a massive tent. We didn't get to talk about all the things we needed to talk about, but thank you for sitting here and talking about the things that we did get to talk about. Which thank is you, Alex. Not a koan, but something I'm saying. Mark Leibovich and Charlie Sykes. Thank you both for your time Thank in this you. very dark hour for the globe. Coming up, we will talk to the chair of the Progressive House Caucus about exactly what Democrats should learn from their victory in a New York special election last night. 
But first, a uniquely American event, a Super Bowl victory parade, was ruined today by a recurring American problem, gun violence. That is next. Wow. It's hard to describe looking at this, you know, something that was supposed to be so joyful. Just turned so quickly and you can see some strollers out here and it's, you never think you're going to be the one covering it when it happens, but it can happen anywhere. It can happen anywhere. That was Caitlin Knute, a local anchor for NBC affiliate KSHB in Kansas City. She was covering the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade today when gunfire broke out, killing at least one person. According to Kansas police, at at least 21 others were wounded by gunfire, including nine children between the ages of 6 and 15. All of them are expected to recover. Three people are currently in custody, but no motive is currently known. So far, NBC News is reporting that the shooting appears to be criminal in nature and not terrorism. Congressman Emanuel Cleaver represents Kansas City as part of Missouri's 5th Congressional District. He joins me now. Congressman, thank you for being here. I understand that you had family members who were in attendance at the event. And first, our our thoughts and and hope that they are in in safe hands. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how this has impacted your own community? Well, uh, there was always uh, going to be a a float for uh, congressional representatives. and. because we had a an important vote here uh, on uh, the uh, impeachment of or, or the silly impeachment of uh, Mayorka, the Secretary of Homeland Security, I decided I would stay and then decided at the last minute I I wasn't going to try to get up early in the morning and get down and then get back. So my wife and uh, children uh, went down to the station. Um, when the shooting started, they were ushered inside Union Station with a number of uh, other elected officials uh, and officials of the uh, Kansas City Chiefs football team. Uh, so they made it out. But, uh, you know, there, there were people that are killed uh, who I know. And um, there's one woman who, who I know. I know her entire family, for that matter. And it's a sad, sad day, uh, you know, especially at Union Station, because uh, it, it was uh, June 17, 1933, when Pretty Boy Floyd came in to uh, the parking lot that everybody saw on national TV and shot and killed four G men in front of Union Station, um, and uh, and Frank Nash was killed. Who was uh, they were trying to break him out of uh, out of jail. So it's it's a, it's unfortunate that uh, one of our major attractions to Kansas City has had uh, visited upon it uh, some of the worst things that we can we can think about. But the worst thing about today uh, after the uh, unnecessary killing and wounding of, of, of uh, people who went out to have a good time is the fact that it made me realize even more than ever that I am a part of a body, a body that does nothing, even in the face of tragedy, nothing at all. Uh, thoughts and prayers. Uh, you know, I don't I don't need thoughts and prayers. And those people uh, down there and others who will be shot in the future don't need thoughts and prayers. They need action and it is so troublesome and painful to me, and and hopefully people around the whole country uh, are angry uh, that uh, you know when some tragedy like this occurs, we march down to the well of the house, and uh, somebody says we want we want our thoughts and prayers to go out to these people who have been shot and killed and their families and so forth. 
uh, prayer without action is just wasted words. And frankly, you know, I'm tired of the wasted words. And uh, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves as a legislative body to allow these actions to continue. We also had a shooting in Atlanta uh, today and uh, probably a, a hundred other shootings that we, we all uh, never know about. Um, Missouri has the 48th worst gun laws in the United States of America. There's no universal background checks, gun owner licensing, domestic violence, gun laws, assault weapons restrictions. I mean, do you think that that had a direct effect on what happened today, Congressman? Well, absolutely. Uh, and I'm embarrassed about the fact that, that uh, we uh, we're so uh, far behind that we are coming across as troglodytes um, as it relates to this issue. All people want a common sense gun regulations. And people have lied to people for years and years and years. They're out for your guns and, and they try to create this kind of paranoia and, and anger. And the truth of the matter is nobody wants to take anybody's gun. But uh, I, I think, you know, we have military style guns. Uh, we have guns that are not used for deer hunting. Uh, and those are, are used right now almost exclusively uh, to kill human beings. And uh, I, the, the, the truth is we can do better in Missouri. Uh, I realize that people, uh, you know, look at us as a, as a you know, rural state. Uh, but uh, I think there are a lot of people in Missouri, like people around the world, who, if they had a chance to vote on common sense gun uh, regulations, uh, go to the ballot box and vote, they would vote for it. Uh, we're not talking about taking people's guns and all of the lies that have been told year after year after year, every time we get ready for an election, the fear mongers go out and say that they're trying to take your guns. And that's that's a lie. President Biden in a statement today says we know what we have to do. We just need the courage to do it. Congressman Emanuel Cleaver of Missouri, it's um, thank you for having thank you for taking the time tonight. Uh, we trust that your family is safe and well. Thank, thank you again. Thank you. Still ahead tonight, on the heels of a big victory for New York Democrat Tom Suozzi, a whole bunch of Democrats are saying his strategy to talk tough on the border could be the path to victory in November. But is everyone in the party on board with that? I'll talk to Congressman Pramila Jayapal about what happens next. The southern border is 2,000 miles away, but the migrant crisis has landed right in our own backyard. I'll work across the aisle to do what our leaders haven't, secure our border. Close the routes used for illegal immigration, but open paths to citizenship for those willing to follow the rules. I'll work with anyone to get it done. That was not a Republican campaign ad. It was released last month by Tom Suozzi. The New York Democrat ran a campaign focused on immigration policy and strict border policy in a district where Republicans had won every major election in the past three years until yesterday. That's when Mr. Swazi defeated his Republican opponent and flipped the seat that was vacated by disgraced MAGA fabulist George Santos. Today, Democrats, including Senator Chris Murphy, say Swazi's victory should provide a roadmap for the Democratic Party in November. In a memo today, Murphy told fellow Democrats that they should learn a lesson from New York 3. We risk losing the 2024 election if we do not seize this opportunity to go on offense on the issue of the border and turn the tables on Republicans on a key fall voting issue. 
Joining me now is Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from the great state of Washington and, of course, chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Congresswoman Jayapal, thank you for making the time. I've been so eager to know how you think, uh, what you think of the sort of broadly held suggestion today that Democrats run the Swazi playbook on immigration. Do you think that that is the right idea? Well, I think it depends on what you call the Swazi playbook. I'm well, congratulations to Tom Swazi. I served with him before. Looking forward to serving with him again. He ran a great disciplined campaign. Secondly, I think what Democrats should learn is don't run away from immigration. I agree that we need to lean into this issue. And that is what Tom did because he didn't let Republicans define us. He defined us. Now, he also, Alex, talked about a path to citizenship. I mean, he talked about the issue of immigration as being one that needs to be fixed. And later on in the campaign, he also talked about the hypocrisy of Republicans who don't want to fix it, who want to leave it out there as an issue to just try to divide us. Um, He also was very, very inclusive in talking about his own immigration story, in talking about Ellis Island. I mean, he really had a, a fairly inclusive message. Was it exactly the message I would have used in my district? No, but that that's a, I think that the lesson should not be you got to talk tough and talk about shutting down the border. It's about talking about immigration, embracing it. And it's about the ground game. And I just can't say how much progressives deserve credit for this race as well, because Battleground New York, which was a progressive labor and community coalition, knocked on 100,000 doors in that district. And the AAPI vote, for the first time, there was a very on-the-ground campaign with Tom, you know, speaking to every Asian uh, Asian American community, learning to speak a little bit of the languages, going out with lit, with dedicated hotlines for people in different languages to get to the polls. It was a very concerted effort to speak to immigrants voters in their languages, in their home places. And in fact, he outperformed Biden in many of the areas that had large numbers of AAPIs. Now we'll see, you know, what the final numbers are. But I think these two things together are a reminder to the Democrats that we need our base, we need immigrant voters, and we need an inclusive message that is real about the fact that the border is uh, is is the immigration system is broken and that what's happening at the border is a direct and inverse relationship to the fact that we have taken away all these legal pathways and we have a legal immigration system that simply isn't working because it's 30 years old yeah. and hasn't formed. Well, you know, I love talking about the AAPI community, but I do think, you know, one of the things that Mr. Swazi touted was this the bipartisan Senate deal on on the border which a lot of progressive Democrats were not really fans of. And he touted that deal as evidence that Democrats were really, quote unquote, serious about fixing the problem. I mean, is that the right piece of policy in the minds of progressives to show the American voter that the Democratic Party is serious about immigration reform? No, I think what the message there is Republicans are hypocrites. This Mm. is what we've been saying for a long time. They don't want to fix it. They pushed for the most restrictive immigration policy, policy that I don't agree with and I don't think Democrats should have gone along with. Even when they got a lot of that, they said no. So let's focus on the hypocrisy of Republicans who don't want to fix the problem. And as Democrats, let's embrace an inclusive message that goes back to the values of fixing 
fixing an underlying system that has no more legal pathways that work, no more processing that works, delays that simply don't allow for people to come and join their families or even take jobs in an economy where immigrants are contributing and we desperately need workers and people to do the work across this country. And yet Republicans are stopping us from any progress on anything related to immigration. And by the way, they don't share our values. They want to separate families. They want to go to Trumpian harsh enforcement policies that simply don't work. And that's the way I would phrase it is not that we had a perfect border deal. I don't like that border deal, but I think it is an opportunity to show the hypocrisy of Republicans and to remind Democrats once again that we win elections when we turn out our base yeah. as well as independents. And I think that's something Democrats constantly forget. Let's not run away from immigration. Let's dive into it and show the beauty of uh, the Democratic vision when it comes to immigration. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, thank you as always. It's great to hear from you tonight. That is our show for this evening.